Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm Minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Welcome to our series on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, I want to read a few verses today from uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, verses 3 to 9. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Well, the first three Beatitudes express the journey to becoming a disciple of Jesus. It begins with a recognition of sinfulness, of poverty of spirit, uh, that is then mourned over and finally dealt with because of the mercy of God. The second three Beatitudes express the kind of character that a, a disciple, uh, as a forgiven person, becomes. They are hungry to do what is right. They are merciful and all that that means as well as desiring to do the will of God. So it is reasonable to assume that such a person would be someone who makes an impact in the world. The question is, what kind of impact will they make? The last two Beatitudes tell us what kind of impact disciples will make in the world, and the first is in the realm of peacemaking. Now, we are all fortunate enough to live in an open, free, democratic society. Scotland welcomes all people and prohibits discrimination on the basis of a person's race, gender or religious beliefs. One aspect of living in such a society is that there is a multiplicity of different religious faith beliefs. And I suppose that most of us are familiar with the big ones like Christianity, Islam, Hinduism and Buddhism and so on. But there's a few unusual ones as well. Uh, particularly amongst what we might call the New Age beliefs. Uh, apparently some of the old pagan religions are making a comeback, not that they ever really went away. One of the strangest religious beliefs in Scotland is, is uh, Jedi, uh, for it's not actually a, a genuine belief at all. It's a, it's a fictional religion uh, based, of course, on uh, Star Wars. Uh, however, one of the most common faiths in Scotland is what we call secularism. Well, some would argue that it's a philosophy rather than a faith. It is one that certainly requires faith uh, to be adhered to. In that regard, secularism isn't the same uh, as atheism. The issue is not that secularists don't believe in God, but rather that they do believe in humanity. Secularists believe in the inevitable and constant progress of human beings and human societies. They often blame, like atheists, all that is wrong in the world on religion uh, and uh, they think that, uh, like many atheists, they think that if we could only be set free from the shackles of religion, then the world would be a wonderful place. According to secularists, if science and human reason were the dominant factors in our societies, the driving forces of them, then we'd live in peace and harmony and would progress in every way for the benefit of everyone. Unfortunately for secularists, history suggests that this is at best wishful thinking and at worst a, a leap of blind faith. 
The beginning of the 20th century was a time of great advancement in science and medicine. Uh, new discoveries were, were being made uh, that were improving people's lives every single day and it just seemed like we were heading towards, at least certainly people in the West thought, we were heading towards a kind of utopia where the enlightened civilizations of the West would bring their enlightened blessing to the whole world uh, resulting in peace and harmony globally. The dreams of human progress were shattered in 1914 with the First World War. It led to what's often called protest atheism and many turned their back on God as a result of the supposedly Christian nations slaughtering one another. It's worth saying that the First World War, actually like the vast majority of wars since then, have nothing to do with religion, but everything to do with nationalistic imperialism, politics, human greed and sinfulness. With that in mind, the increase in secularism is strange. Both atheism and secularism fail to understand or take into account what the Bible refers to as human sinfulness. The assumption is that humans are basically good and the evil that we do is only the result of perhaps a poor upbringing or a lack of education. However, history suggests that the Bible is actually correct and that humans are not good. In fact, we are evil to the core. A basic assumption of St Paul's letter to the Romans is that there is no sin or evil that we would not commit if it were not for the grace of God at work in the world and in our lives, both his common grace and his particular grace. It's impossible to turn on the, the TV news or read a newspaper today without being confronted with the evil that is humanity. Violence and oppression, murder and genocide are everywhere we look. The unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Russia, the ongoing, the ongoing war and the mounting evidence of terrible war crimes and atrocities committed by the Russians against Ukrainian soldiers and uh, civilians is a powerful reminder of the human propensity of eat for evil. Let's not think that only Russians are capable of that. Even on a personal level, our lives are often more characterised by strife and conflict and broken relationships than by peace and harmony. We're all familiar with the pain and damage of interpersonal conflict. We all encounter situations of strife and conflict on a daily basis at work, in our families, with friends and even in the church. In fact, it is often in the very places where we think we should experience the fullness of peace within our families and in the church that we experience the most painful of conflicts. Jesus' call for his disciples to be peacemakers then is needed as much, if not more today, than it was in the first century. And yet this beatitude is possibly one of the most radical and difficult things that Jesus ever said. Scholar Donald Hagner captures something of its radical nature when he anchors it in the historical and social context of first century Palestine. He writes, in the context of the Beatitudes, the point would seem to be directed at the Zealots, the Jewish revolutionaries who hoped through violence to bring the kingdom of God. Such means would have been a continual temptation for the downtrodden and oppressed who longed for the kingdom. The Zealots, by their militarism, hoped furthermore to demonstrate that they were the loyal sons of God. But here's Jesus announcing that it's the peacemakers 
who will be called children of God. The stress on peace becomes a common motif in the New Testament. Jesus' declaration that the peacemakers were the true sons of God would have really shocked just about everyone who heard him say it. We know that the vast majority of the Jews, even those who weren't amongst the zealots, were looking for a Messiah who would come uh, and through military conquest would reclaim the throne of David by force, booting out the Romans in the process. Now here was Jesus virtually saying that it was the people who sought to be at peace with the Romans who were the true sons of God. His audience shouldn't actually have been surprised because what he said was entirely consistent with the message of the Old Testament. Jeremiah was a prophet who warned about God's judgment in the form of invasion and captivity and his words came true. The people were taken into captivity in Babylon as slaves subject to a foreign people with foreign language and foreign customs and foreign gods. Since they were looking to be rescued and returned to their homeland, the last thing they might have expected God to say to them in that situation was what he said through Jeremiah. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number and do not decrease. Also, seek the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Here was God not only calling them to be peacemakers, but to be peacemakers with their conquerors. To live in peace with those who carry them off into exile, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of their enemies, for the sake of those people who'd conquered them and carried them into exile. I think we've got the wrong idea about peacemakers. Maybe we're so used to conflict that we've come to accept that a certain level of conflict is normal. It's, it's a fact of life, both internationally and personally. So it's worthwhile taking a closer look at what it means to be a peacemaker. The Hebrew term most commonly translated as peace in the Bible is the word shalom. It's actually very difficult to a word to translate, but it has a, a richer, deeper meaning than merely the absence of conflict. Johann Christoph Arnold was a pastor in the Bruderhof, a worldwide Anabaptist community, and he wrote about shalom saying, because of the depth and breadth of its connotations, it possesses no single meaning though one might translate it as completeness, soundness or wholeness. Shalom means the end of war and conflict, but it also means friendship, contentment, security and health, prosperity, abundance, tranquility, harmony with nature and even salvation. And it means these things for everyone, not for a select few. Shalom is ultimately a blessing, a gift from God. It's not human endeavour. It applies to the state of the individual, but also to relationships among people, nations and between God and man. Beyond this, shalom is ultimately tied to justice because it is the enjoyment or celebration of human relationships which have been made right. In other words, shalom is the fullness of life that God intends for his creation. 
peacemaking then is not merely to bring two warring parties together to negotiate the cessation of hostilities, it's also to seek the common good, to pursue social justice and equality so that shalom is felt in every aspect of society to the unbelieving world. The, the church, as it, as, as it moves out in its peacemaking role, is saying to the world, this is what God requires. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. In the modern world then, disciples of Jesus are called to be at the forefront of issues of social justice, not as a result or, a, or because of alignment to or loyalty to a political party or ideology, but because we are called to be peacemakers. There is also an intensely personal aspect to the call to be peacemakers. As Clarence Jordan writes, with Jesus, peacemaking involved not merely a change of environment, but also a change of heart. God's plan of peacemaking is not merely to bring about an outward settlement between evil people, but to create people of goodwill. Peacemaking is to seek the fullness of life and well-being for others, even those we might consider our enemies. The call to be peacemakers then is a radical statement even today because it's a call not simply to live peaceably with others so that none of our words and actions result in disharmony. It also means that we will be willing to bear evil and injustice against us, even to be brutalised and yet refuse to return blow for blow. For those who say that cannot be done, well... I would simply point you to the methodology of Gandhi or Dr Martin Luther King Jr who both employed a strategy of peaceful, non-retaliatory, non-violent protest in their respective movements. Bonhoeffer is uncompromising on this point when he writes that a disciple should not resist when challenged by evil that cannot be justified at all. Instead, by suffering, the disciple will bring evil to its end and thus will overcome the evil person. Suffering willingly endured is stronger than evil. It is the death of evil. What that means is if someone in the family or at work or even in the church can say or do something to us that is hurtful and offensive, we simply bear the blow and do not return evil for evil. But it's more than just that. It also means that in the face of the evil done to us, we will still work for the good and well-being of those who have done it. Peacemakers are not weak-minded, spineless cowards who would rather talk than fight. They are, in fact, the strongest people on earth. Bonhoeffer gets to the very heart of the matter when he says that Jesus' followers are called to peace. Now that they are not, not only to have peace, but they are to make peace. To do this, they renounce violence and strife. Those things never help the cause of Christ. Christ's kingdom is a realm of peace. Jesus' disciples maintain peace by choosing to suffer instead of causing others to suffer. They preserve community when others destroy it. They renounce self-assertion and are silent in the face of hatred and injustice. That is how they overcome evil with good. That is how they are makers of divine peace in a world of hatred and war. But their peace, he says, will never be greater than when they encounter evil people in peace and are willing to suffer from them. Peacemakers will bear the cross with their Lord, for peace was made at the cross.
There will always be a cost to being a peacemaker. It will cost us our pride when we are wronged, yet refuse to retaliate or even argue back. In extreme circumstances, it may even cost us our lives. We simply cannot escape the fact that, as Paul says in Colossians, that God made peace with us through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. The cost of peace is always the cross. Peace is so much a part of God's mission in the world that those who are peacemakers will be called sons of God because they'll be like him. A chip off the old block, as the saying goes. So we need to think about our circle of relationships and ask ourselves, how, through our words and actions, are we being peacemakers in those relationships? In other words, in our circle of relationships, in our communities, how much do we look like our Father? in heaven. Thanks for listening.